Amen. If you have your Bibles, if you would take them and open them with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I do hope you have your Bibles because we are going to exercise them quite a bit here this morning. Already, I have been greatly encouraged, very thankful that I have been able to be here this morning as the world around us seems to be falling apart, as uh, just getting these liturgies printed out was no small feat, as our electricity went out at 6.30 this morning and all kinds of challenge. But you come and you start to read and sing the Psalms and what a comfort there are because there's so many promises right there for our situation right here this morning. And it's just encouraging to know that our God is on the throne, He is in control, and that He is desiring to bless His people lavishly with His grace and love. As we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, I literally changed the entire message um, last night and this morning, so uh, we'll see how this goes, but I want to focus on one focal point because it is critically important uh, to get this understanding down, to then understand the applications that will flow out from it pertaining the church and the vision that we have here at Heritage. I would like to begin this time by beginning at reading verse 6, but the verse that we're going to focus on is verse 13. So beginning at verse 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And there are diversities of activities... But it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another workings of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit." Our gracious Father, we ask that the Spirit would give us an understanding because we know that these these truths are spiritually discerned and the carnal man cannot obtain unto them. And do we ask that you would fill us with the Spirit of God who penned these words, who gave them for our instruction and to glorify our God and to know how we are to live and how to see the vision of the church. We pray that you would open our hearts, that we would receive these things. May we be teachable in our spirit this morning. And may we receive from the Spirit those things which would delight you into pointing us to Christ and his glory, to the glory of our Father in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning is going to be a little technical. I want you to gird up the loins of your minds and try to stay with me, all right? Um, 
got to clear up some doctrinal misunderstandings that have led many folks in many very different directions. And a lot of it comes right into the focus here in this one verse. So when we take a particular verse out of context and we don't flesh out all the details and unpack it in terms of its greater whole and context, it will lead to great misunderstandings and unhealthy practices. So this morning I want to zoom in on this one particular verse, verse 13, which is in the midst of its immediate context, which is in the midst of a broader context, which is in the midst of a grand context. And we have to see it in that broader context to truly appreciate and understand what's going on here. So I want us to understand this one particular verse so that our good applications of ministry can flow. So this morning I'm really focusing on a doctrinal a doctrine here um, and kind of narrowing it down because I think it is that important to understand really some of the application and vision of heritage. As we focus on verse 13, for by one spirit we were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Now, I want to ask you a few questions just to begin your cognitive juices and your thinking to go into gear here. And so what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? Is it purely spiritual? Does it have anything to do with water baptism or not? What does it have to do with the church? Does it have anything to do with church membership? Or even just the physical membership? Or is that merely reading into the text something that's not there? Is the spirit baptism a second work of grace that not all have it? as many charismatics would claim, and therefore something to be sought after, something to be prayed, something that comes after as a second work of grace, after you've been saved, to endow with particular gifts. Does this have anything to do with the invisible church, or is it the visible church, or are those terms more confusing than they are helpful in this particular context? Those are some questions. Now, what is he talking about in verse 13? Let's clarify a few points here. Trying to just let go of any preconceptions and any presuppositions and just be wide open with me for a moment, I think it'll help. When you see the term baptism in the New Testament, especially this far into the development of the church, Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, The foundations have been clearly established by now. Paul is uh, well on his way into his second missionary journeys. He, the church, churches have been established all throughout the Galatia region and then now over the, in the southern Turkey and the, uh, the aspects of then Greece and now over into Corinth and here Paul goes to Ephesus and writing this epistle well into the development of the church. When we see that term baptism, particularly in the New Testament, and particularly at this far in the development, 
We need to know that has loaded significance. You can't just divorce yourself and isolate a particular aspect of this. Baptism is a New Testament sacrament. And when believers are saved, unbelievers are saved, they are baptized. And when you are baptized, it joins you to the church. And that's one of the specific things that baptism identifies you with is joining in the body of Christ, the church, which is an inseparable union with Christ himself. It was interesting as we were reading Ephesians 2, I don't know if you picked up on this creation. He's talking about the church. This creation was created in Christ Jesus, right? The bride comes from the husband. Out of the flesh and the bones of the husband. That's how Eve was created. And now with the the last Eve, the church, out of our side of our Adam, our, our last Adam, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones. And we are created in Christ Jesus and out of Christ Jesus, into Christ Jesus, yes, right? And so baptism is identifying with this vital, mystical union that we have with Christ in the church. Now, physical baptism is a symbol of another reality. When we baptize, when we eat the supper, these are sacraments, meaning they have a symbol. That's part of a sacrament. You have to have a symbol. Well, the symbol symbolizes something. It symbolizes a reality. And when we have physical baptism, it's a symbol of another invisible reality because sacraments are signs and seals and that symbol has an identification to it. We should always be thinking about the reality to which the symbol identifies or is connected or points to or focuses on. So when we read this verse... We're reading something of an invisible reality behind the symbol of water baptism. And the word baptism is bringing these things together. Now, many commentators and preachers, very common today, have dismissed this verse to say it is talking about spirit baptism, not water baptism. Don't get that confused, they would say. But to unrelate the two is to create a false dichotomy that never exists in Scripture. The very term baptism identifies with the water sacrament. So when we have something that isn't water baptism like is in this text, it is certainly related to it and we should not dismiss it out of hand as though it has nothing to do with it. Now let's consider the baptism itself. Let's read the verse again. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now when the rite of water baptism is performed, let's think about four things. We're going to think about the one who does the baptizing, the ordained minister. We're going to think about number two, the person who's being baptized, the recipient of the sacrament. Number three, we're going to think about the element 
in which or by which he was baptized, which is, thank you, I'm just making sure you are tracking with me. And then fourth, we're going to think about the relationship that now that person has with the church. So it goes like this. In the rite of water baptism, it's performed by an ordained minister to a person with water into the church, into the body of Christ. All right? Here, what we see is a reality that is behind those symbols. And those elements are somewhat changed, but the reality is there to be understood. The preposition in some of the English translations is a, 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 can be a little misleading. When we see verse 13, for my, my version says by one spirit. Does anybody else have a different preposition there? In two. In two. Another preposition. In, those can be misleading prepositions, depending on how you actually think about them. The literal Greek is a little word that literally is in. There are different ways to put prepositions or even the constructs in the grammar, but here it's very specifically in, for in one's spirit. Larry's version says, into one spirit. And I think that carries it probably even stronger. The spirit is not the subject who is doing the baptism. But rather, him into which the person is baptized. Does that make sense? He's like the water. Now the person doing the baptism is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the grace that corresponds to water baptism is something like this. Number one, by the Lord Jesus Christ, he is doing the baptism. That corresponds to the ordained minister. To a person, the recipient of the sacrament, that's the same. Through the Spirit, or into the Spirit, by the Spirit, however you see that preposition, it is that into which the person is baptized, which corresponds in a, the rite of water baptism to the water. And then the other element, this is saying into the church. So a spirit baptism, or at least that which water baptism is identified, the spiritual reality is, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is baptizing the person into the spirit, into the church. All right, are we good? The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is the baptizer, not the, bapti uh, not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the... the, the the matter, if you will, the, the water, if you will, into which that person is baptized, into the body of Christ. 
Now, this is exactly in accord with what John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, and I think most of the Gospels, in fact, I think all of the Gospels have this, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus is the baptizer. The Holy Spirit identified with the water. And Jesus himself, just before he ascended into heaven, in Acts chapter 1 says, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Again, he is identifying himself as the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. And if I ascend back upon high, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit upon you. I will pour out my Spirit upon you. And when we see the baptism of the Holy Spirit coming about in Acts chapter 2, it is the pouring out of the Spirit of God. Jesus is the one doing the baptism, pouring out the Spirit of God upon his people at Pentecost empowering them for now the mission that the church has been doing and ongoing since that particular time. Now, what does all that have to do with spiritual gifts and church membership and the body of Christ? Is there some second work of grace that we can expect after we're saved and baptized into the church that this verse is referencing? Do we have to wait now further after being baptized with water for the Holy Spirit to then baptize us so that we can have our spiritual gifts? Some people get this privilege and other people do not. Is that what this baptism of the Holy Spirit is implying? Now, those are the questions that I want us now to turn In order to understand this spirit baptism properly, we must consider the historical development and the role it played in the church in those early developing years. And for that, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16. Let's just kind of get a running start from the beginning. This has a lot of implications So that's why I'm taking some time to focus on it this morning. And Matthew 16, this is before his ascent, but certainly as he's prophesying what things will come about, he's asking Peter, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter is asking, I mean, he's asking all of the disciples, but Peter is now the one who's going to speak up. And Simon Peter, in verse 16 of Matthew 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
And we're going to come back to this particular passage in a subsequent week and wrestle through it and the implications a little bit more. But I want you just to take the surface aspect of it right now. In verse 19, he tells Peter that he's going to give the keys of the kingdom to the point that whatever he binds or loose will have been bound or loosed in heaven. And we will flesh that particular one out. We've done so in the past. But the Lord is talking to Peter who is representing the twelve based upon that profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he then uses Peter's name in identifying him as one of the key foundational stones upon which the church will be built. After all, the church is built upon the prophets and the apostles, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, and Peter is referred to in Galatians as one of the great pillars of the church. And then he identifies the keys of the kingdom, even with Peter. Now, this is certainly where the Roman Catholics get their doctrine of the Pope and apostolic succession. But I'm afraid that Protestants can be sometimes so reactionary to that that they fail to see some important truths carried out in the early development of the church as it pertains to Peter. Specifically. And for that development, let's see the role of Peter in this newly established baptism of the Holy Spirit and see how these things come together, even with the keys of the kingdom church membership, the pouring out of gifts. And for that, I want us to now to go over to Acts chapter 1. I know this is kind of like the workshop here. We're Got the dust of the workshop going through, kind of exploring it in a little different fashion here this morning, but I think this is very important. Acts chapter 1, Jesus is saying before his ascent, For truly, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the world, earth. Now, I, I actually emphasized the comma where I wanted you to hear those particular phrases. In Jerusalem... And in all Judea and Samaria, put that together as one, and to the ends of the earth. Three spheres of church growth that will come into play in Acts. And these are the first and the last and the only time it is necessary to consider those three spheres. Because once they are all uh, expressed, then it continues to grow throughout the entire world. Those three spheres that come into play in terms of how the church grows, first of all, is going to be in Jerusalem. As we see the plan of God taking Abraham and working through it a nation and a commonwealth, then coming into the expression of the fullness when Messiah, who was a Jew, to the Jews, ministry then, was then the Israel of God, the Messiah comes, and now he fulfills all of that which has gone before. The Jews 
had a wrong view of the kingdom. The Jews were thinking they were always the exclusive ones. The Jews then had a particular framework in which they were working that then slanted their view of what it was going to be like when Messiah did finally come. With that, God's going to have to show them all of those Old Testament prophets and how they had expressed this from the beginning, but now with great clarity, but it's not going to be an easy task, even for the Apostle Peter. It's not going to be easy. This is the first of its kind ever. So he's going to start in Jerusalem, the very place that cradled the Messiah in the Jews and for the Jews. And what we see there happening at Jerusalem on Pentecost at a feast of which the Jews celebrated. And here on the day of Pentecost, which was always on the first day of the week, by the way. As one of those great three feasts pointing forward to this very day, we read in verse 1 and When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance." Here was the pouring out of the Spirit of God. This was the baptism that Jesus was baptizing them in the Holy Spirit, empowering them. And now all of a sudden, they were speaking in languages of all of the other Jews from the other place to the point where the Jews were misinterpreting. Are these men drunk with new wine? What is going on here? They knew they were in the presence of something they could not deny. Peter gets up and he says, no, 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 brethren, it's only the ninth hour of the day. It's, it's very early. It's, it, here we are, uh, third hour of the day, nine o'clock our time in the morning. Here we are. This is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel when he says, I will pour out my spirit. This was the baptism, the pouring out of the spirit that had been prophesied, that was part of the promise of the new covenant, and now was here. And it was evident. It was manifest in the way that could not be denied. Something new was happening. And then we come, he's explaining this as he brings all this message, and he says, what are we going to do? And then Peter says in verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And let that sink in for a moment. Repent. Be baptized, water. You receive the Holy Spirit. And he's going to explain it. For the promise is to you and to your children and to those that are far off and as many as the Lord will call. This was Jeremiah 31 beginning to be fulfilled in their very midst where the Spirit of God would be poured out upon all flesh who come into this new race. There was a water baptism here, yeah? But there's something of the Spirit that's going on here too, yeah? 
So he goes on and says in verse 41, Then those who gladly received the word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Added to, to, to what? The church. Membership? The church? Identifying with a new body of people? Added to them. So I'm hoping that you can begin to see that the dots do connect between church membership and water baptism and spirit baptism. And there's a, a very specific focal point that the Spirit Himself wants to show where these three come together. The spirit baptism and water baptism are identified with each other and the membership of the church. You are baptized by an ordained minister with water into the church. You are baptized by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, into the church. There's a relationship that connects the symbol to the grace. Now that's sphere, sphere one. You will be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, he says. But second, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. I want you to notice that phrase in Acts chapter 8, which is the second sphere of this kingdom growth, now exercising the keys of the kingdom beyond now the Jews and into those hated half-breeds of the Samaritans. And it goes out from Jerusalem into this region. The Samaritans, as you may remember, were those who were carried off in the, by the Assyrians, uh, the northern ten tribes. And the Assyrians come in and they intermarry with these Jews. And you get a half-breed of a people that were related to or called the Samaritans. And the Jews and the Samaritans despised each other, perhaps maybe because they were in some way connected and so close But here we have Judea and Samaria, that very phrase in Acts 8.1. Now Saul was consenting to his death, Stephen's. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Now, there's the second time, or the, the phrase, Judea and Samaria, and that's why I think we keep them together. So it's not four regions, it's only three. It's not Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and to the ends of the world. It's Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the world, representing three particular people groups. Now we have here in Acts 8.5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and now there's a revival that breaks out, and people are coming to Christ, and, and word was getting out. Samaritans? Samaritans? They, what? And the church in Jerusalem said, Peter, go, go, go find out what's going on in Samaria. What is this that's going on down there? And that's what happens. Why do they send Peter? Well, we go back to Matthew 16, and there was a, a, a figure there that upon the church that he was going to represent, as we will begin to see this coming clear. 
And we find in verse 14, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had, not, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. All right, I've got to flesh this one out a little bit, right? Here's a point at which people came to Christ and they were baptized with water. But they had not had the baptism of the Holy Spirit yet. Ah, a second work of grace, I say. No, 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 no. We have to understand this in the development of the historical context of the growth of the church as it begins to grow. And this is the very first time it's in the region of Judea and Samaria. And when these half-breeds are coming into the kingdom without the, all of the accoutrements of the commonwealth of Israel. And this is something that was going to have to be found out and verified and tested it's an interesting development. The Samaritans were saved. They were baptized with water, but they had not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There was a temporary disconnect between their water baptism and the very grace that it identified with. This is where charismatics see a baptism as a second work of grace but it's important to maintain the doctrine which baptism is identifying here is membership in the church. Membership. Now, in order to firmly establish that Samaritans were going to be and, and now were indeed incorporated into the membership of the church, there was a delay in the spirit baptism until Peter arrived. Now keep in mind that the church was going to be built upon this foundation where Peter would play a very important role with the exercise of the keys of the kingdom which have to do with the binding and the loosing of sins. Are we tracking so far? Uh-oh. I see the glazed eye. Are we tracking? Those keys that Peter was given, which disciples and then later all the, the entirety of the church, the, the elders and those who would then be in this office, determined or professed or testified who was in the church and who's not in the church. And baptism is integrally related to the keys of the kingdom. Once a person has been saved by the gospel, he enters the church through baptism and becomes counted in the number of the people in the body of Christ. In order for Jerusalem church to embrace the Samaritan converts and membership into their body, spirit baptism was delayed until Peter could get there and be present and the spirit then evidenced himself outwardly to testify to Peter. And those who were with them, yep, Samaritans are now in the church. Now it's a little bit of a pill that Peter had to swallow, but how can he deny it? The Spirit himself, God showed him through this outward manifestation of the Spirit that these Samaritans are now in the church. 
Well, the third wave of church membership, and one that is going to be the most difficult pill to swallow, particularly for our friend Peter, was going to be into the ends of the world, and that's to the Gentiles. This one's going to be hard. And while we have two whole chapters there, beginning in Acts chapter 10, as it pertains to the salvation of the very first Gentile converts in the church. You have to understand, Peter was a Jew. He was raised and born, he was born and raised a Jew. He thought Jewish. He thought just like the other Jews. And now that he had the Spirit of God, he still did not have complete clarity on these things. Even in Acts 2, 39, when it says, and, and, and the promise is to you, the promise of the Holy Spirit is to you and to your children and to those that are far off. He's not thinking those that are far off are Gentiles. He's thinking those are the dispersion of the Jews people that had been dispersed. He's still thinking very Jewishly there. But now he gets the challenge of the lifetime. Here was this centurion of an Italian regiment named Cornelius. And here in chapter 10, we have a representation of all Gentiles coming into the membership of the church. We know that by the way the chapter of 10 and 11 unfold and by what was represented at the Acts 15 church council. This is the third wave of church membership in the one church. He was a Gentile. So much so that Peter had to learn a little extra to help him, enable him to understand that even the Gentiles are going to be incorporated into the body of Christ, the church. While Peter clearly understood the church being the new Israel, he was still having a difficult time with it. So that's when the, the whole sheet vision comes down. The clean and the unclean are now no longer a distinction there. And he says, rise, Peter, take and eat for what I have cleaned. Do not call unclean. And he's speaking about what's about to knock on his door. Here comes messengers from Cornelius to come and fetch Peter. Now, why did God just not save Peter? I mean, save Cornelius. He used Peter. He didn't have to, but he did. Cornelius already was versed in some of the scriptures, but he was a full-blown Gentile. And so then Peter goes, and he comes to Cornelius' house. Peter, Cornelius tells why he sent him, and Peter then began expressing to him the gospel, probably by this time still a little uncertain. What's, what's going on? What's taking place here? And it says in verse 44, while Peter, in, in Acts 10, 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. That includes Peter. <gasps> What? That's what's going on in Peter's mind. What? The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. And they had to sit there and just take this in for a little bit. All right, all of a sudden you just see the light bulb. You can just see it coming. 
The Gentiles are going to be a part of the church. The new Israel. The Gentiles. Yes. Members. Full-blown members. Not proselytes. Not second-class citizens. Full-blown membership. How do we know this? Because the Spirit baptized them too. And by the way, they had not yet been baptized with water. Here we see the Holy Spirit baptizing the recipients of grace even before water baptism. And while it was still separated in time, they were identified with one another. Clearly they were identified with one another because Peter then uses that as the very reason why he needed to baptize them with water. Verse 47, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And they stayed a few days. So while there is a separation in time, there is not a disconnect between the symbol and the reality. And so spirit baptism is identified with the water baptism. But all of that is really identifying the core principle behind it all. Membership in the body of Christ. The new creation, the new heavens, the new earth of which these Jews were so longing for is now coming to bear right in their presence. And it included the Gentiles as full-blown citizens, members. And so it was a testimony to Peter that he could not deny, hey, the very thing that is happening to them is what happened to me at Pentecost just a few days ago. And now, how can I deny water baptism to those because the baptism, water baptism is identifying the same. Now they've got the reality, the sign, well, sure, right? Are you tracking that? In fact, in chapter 11, it goes on to, this is where Peter then has to rehearse all of this to his friends and Christians and Jews back in Jerusalem. Now, wait, wait, I, I know what you're thinking, friends. I know what you're thinking. He goes on to say, you know, he has to rehearse it all over again. Verse 15 in chapter 11, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, that just became crystal clear at that moment. Verse 17, if therefore God gave them the same gift he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent. <laughs> Can you imagine what was it before they became silent? Peter, are you crazy? What's going on? What are you doing? You know, they became silent. And they glorified God. Then God also granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. And you see the light bulb just going off in these Jews. Wow, this is big. This is momentous. This is bigger than we ever thought. The three spheres of development of the early church and spirit baptism was a sign of church inclusion, church membership. Peter was present at all three of those spheres 
to testify what he just did. He had to give testimony to show, yep, they're in. Yep, they're in. (laughs) The Gentiles, as much in as we are. See, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the early church, the sign gifts of speaking in tongues was actually secondary. The, the primary aspect was the integration into the body of Christ itself, for which it still is. But the early church had the sign gifts so that it would be manifest in a very visible way that the apostles themselves could identify with so that they could say, yes, okay, I get it now. And testify to the rest of the church and testify at the, 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 the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Yeah, yeah, Gentiles are in. Don't need to be circumcised. I mean, full-blown, they're in. And in this development, we see that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is integrally related to water baptism because both pertain to church membership. In fact, church membership is the emphasis that the, of the spirit baptism, uh, as I mentioned. So when we go back to our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'll just give you a little quiz here to see if you're, you're hanging in there with me. Paul says this in chapter 12. This is our text again. For by or in or into one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. All right, you see that now? Now that, the testimony that all peoples are included into the church, we no longer see a time disconnect between those who have been water baptized into the church and those who have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. That part has done its course. That part has played its role. Now everyone is included. And that's how Paul assumes when he is speaking in this text in 1 Corinthians 12. While the rite of water baptism corresponds to spirit baptism, it also corresponds to even more than that. Both of which have to do with church membership. For you are baptized into one spirit, into the body. And Paul assumes here in 1 Corinthians 12 that everyone who is in the church has already been baptized by the Holy Spirit. All have been made partakers. All have some spiritual gift. That separation that happened in the early development of the church has run its course. It's done its thing. Now we are in a developed church. The spiritual gifts are an outward endowment of the Holy Spirit in order to edify the church. And every one of the members in the church has individually a spiritual gift. Now, let me just make sure that we're all clear. We are not talking about the same thing as the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the Spirit for just a second here. The Spirit has several works. One is His regenerating work. Another is His indwelling and filling work, even testifying that God to the Father, yeah? 
But there is this empowering, this external power that's given. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the, the, Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit's baptism. All throughout the Old Testament, every saint that was saved was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. No exceptions whatsoever because faith comes after regeneration. You can't even believe unless God first changes that old depraved heart so that then we embrace the Lord Jesus in faith. Regeneration precedes that faith, and so the Holy Spirit has to do that new creation in them just like he does with us. When he does that work, he comes in and fills the believer with his presence, and so they are also integrated in, but not the empowering. The empowering work of the Holy Spirit was more limited in the Old Testament. This is what was prophesied in Joel about being poured out upon you. The empowering of the Holy Spirit was going to be upon all people. But in the Old Testament, it was very limited and mostly to prophets, priests, and kings, and an occasional donkey. See, that donkey was not regenerated, on which Balaam sat. He was not filled, but he was empowered for a moment and for a time in order to do the work of God to speak prophecy. But when we come into the New Testament, the New Covenant, when Christ has risen and the kingdom has started and it's on the earth and it's empowered now, the very power that raised Christ from the dead has now been given to you. And therefore, you have the ability to go make disciples from all of the nations and with the spiritual gifts he's given to you. Each one of us has it from the littlest to the, the greatest, our boys, our girls, our women, our men, not just our ministers, but every one of us has a spiritual gift. And that's one of the glorious things of the new covenant in which we live. But is it possible to have the Spirit's empowerment and not be truly saved? Well, if you just remember that donkey, then I think you can get some clarity there. Hebrews chapter 6 brings out, and this is a very complicated passage, but I'm going to turn just briefly there before I close. Hebrews 6 gives us a warning, beginning at verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were... Now get, get the clarifications. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift, and having become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away... To renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. I do believe it's possible that there could be an empowering of the Spirit of God upon some people without them being regenerated and filled by the same Spirit. Because when they come into the church, and yet they deny the very essence of everything that it means to be in the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where this verse comes in.
See, being in the church is a very holy and sacred place. It is the kingdom of light out of the kingdom of darkness. And there is a protection here, a haven here, a safety here. So that even when one has the keys of the kingdom exercised upon him and is excommunicated out of the church, 1 Corinthians 5 says he is turned over to the domain of Satan. Now, it truly can be that a regenerate person can go through that entire process and be excommunicated out of the church. And we do think that that's what happened in 1 Corinthians 5 because that man did get buffeted. He did return and he was very repentant when he came. And I think the second epistle of the, to Corinthians can clarify that. The church is a very important holy institution by God where the power of the Spirit is upon every one of the people who are members here and have been baptized with water but also have been given a very spiritual endowment to be a part of an organic and living body that functions together, every one of us integrated into one and therefore these things are written so that there would not be schisms within the body as what are in Corinth when they were arguing over the spiritual gifts. They were missing the entirety of the point for the gifts have been appointed by the Spirit individually as the Spirit wills to edify the whole body, to grow the body of Christ. And we work together in living union and function as the human body has integrated into Christ. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is related to an empowering gift of the Holy Spirit to every member in the church. Those who have received water baptism are members of the church and they receive spirit baptism. We can just speak as though you have it if you've been baptized in the church. That's how exactly how Paul is addressing the church at Corinth. Those spiritual gifts endows you with a spiritual gift, which is not a talent necessarily, not a, a, a skill necessarily. It is a spiritual endowment given to you as you're faithfully living out the spirit life and loving one another. It edifies the entire church. Now, this is going to touch on a lot of applications of our vision and why I thought it was important to get some understanding of this doctrine down. It has everything to do with church membership and the importance of it and the fear when you're not in a body. It has everything to do with the invisible church and the visible church. And actually, this particular, if you had to force me into one of those, this particular doctrine of spirit baptism in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 would fall more into which one of those categories? The visible, not the invisible. The visible. The, the grace of the spirit baptism is identifying more with the visible church. That's exactly the whole process that was going on through acts yeah they're in they're in they're in the visible samaritans the visible jews the visible gentiles it had to do with the visible body of christ here there is a manifestation of the spirit so that all can profit the manifestation of the spirit and heritage is given to each one of you who are going to be in this visible body yes but I don't like to, to pit the visible and invisible against each other. But it is important to note that this has to do with the visible local body of Christ and with the universal Catholic body of Christ.
why it's going to touch on a lot of our applications. And we do not believe that the sign gifts, like speaking in tongues, are common gift today. They played a very important part and even not only was performed by the apostles, but it was actually a witness to them of those who had it. But now that apostolic age has ended, the Gentiles are in, there's no question about it now, the foundation of the church has been laid, no more need for the apostolic and prophetic office there, and now we believe strongly in this church membership so that as it relates even to our baptism, the Spirit is involved in this whole process and identifies those who are in the church versus those who are not in the church. And that's a very important distinction that we have to maintain. And since those who are identified with the keys of the kingdom, it is essential to our salvation. The spirit baptism, while it is spiritual, really does correspond to the visible church, invisible church, church historic, church triumphant, but you are all a part of this body, having spiritual endowments, building up one another in the church, not outside the church. And we all need to be exercising those spiritual gifts for the glory of Christ. This is how the church grows. Christ is the head. We are the new creation out of Christ and into Christ. As he baptizes his people with the Spirit for the discipling of the nations and the growth of the eternal kingdom so that it covers the face of the earth so that God's glory and the knowledge of his glory will cover the earth as the waters do the sea. You have a great privilege to bear these eternal truths in these earthen vessels. Let's be faithful. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we digest the doctrine that has here been discussed and considered, we pray that the Spirit would give us a great understanding of how all of these dots connect together as it pertains to the keys of the kingdom the profession and the creed that Peter confessed, even his role, the keys of the kingdom as it pertains to church membership and our part in her, not only here at Heritage, but the universal church that has been established from the get-go, and how we thank you for the gifts that you've given to us, for by these you grow the church body organically and together in union as we as we exercise them faithfully. We do ask that as you meet with us around the table now that we can experience this union with Christ in this profound way that you have established for us, that as we eat and drink of these symbols, may we understand the reality behind them that is so given to us graciously and efficaciously through the power of the Spirit and we pray that we would walk faithfully in that which it symbolizes. In Jesus' name, amen.